You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max, and the show is going to start in a second. But first, I'm going to tell you quickly about a sponsor that's making it possible. That sponsor is Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word stuff and mostly audiobooks uh, in the world. There is not a better place to get your audiobooks than Audible. They have over 180,000 titles in their catalog, including many books by people who have been on the show. Cheryl Strayed, George Saunders, ta Coates, Megan Dom. If you want to listen to a book which I expect that you do since you are listening to this show, you should do it on Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. You can get started today for free. You can be listening to a book right after this show because Audible has been so kind as to give you a 30-day free trial. So go check it out, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. And right now, the show, it's going to start. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. I'm joined by just one co-host this week, Max Linsky. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I am uh, looking forward to this interview that you did. I have not heard it yet. Thank you. This interview that I did uh, is with Daniel Alarcon, who uh, is a novelist, first and foremost. He's written two novels, and he also has a collection of short stories. Uh, his novels are very highly acclaimed. Uh, the most recent one is At Night We Walk in Circles, and he's also the co-founder of Radio Ambulante, which is a podcast, a Spanish-language podcast that shorthand for it is uh, This American Life in Spanish, but it's actually uh, much more than that, I would say. This guy does so much stuff. I, I, I hope that you uh, at least touched on, like, how do you manage to do all these things? I did try to get at that. Like, when, how do you decide which of these things you're doing at once? He, also, he teaches at Columbia. He writes nonfiction stories, magazine stories. Uh, he's also got two kids, so he's definitely uh, short, he's juggling a lot. putting us all to shame. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, here's the thing I would say is true. If you had a business and you wanted to email a bunch of people about things going on with your business, uh, you should use MailChimp. Mm. It's true. More than 8 million businesses use MailChimp. True. And uh, Longform does. Adivis does. Yeah, you say, if I had a business, as if, <laughs> if you're talking to me... We do use MailChimp for our business. <laughs> Everyone should. Thank you, MailChimp, for your continued support of our show. We appreciate it. And I'm just going to extend this ad into an actual true fact, which is that we use MailChimp uh, to send people updates about our current story, which is a serialized story called The Mastermind, which somewhat awkwardly for this plug, I also happen to have written. So <laughs> check it out. It's at mastermind.adivis.com. You can also sign up for email updates there, and we'll tell you when the next one comes out. The story is great. You should check it out. And if I get my wish, we will have Evan do like an infomercial for this story. So he has to walk by and be like, oh, hello, it's me. Evan didn't see you there. Uh, but for now, you can listen to Evan interview Danielle Alarcon. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's Thank you for be being on. Yeah. Um, I am a big fan of your work. Going back to, you've done a pop-up magazine, the live magazine, twice. One of which was a story that really uh, stuck with me for a long time. You did a print or a, a written version of it too about this prisoner who wrote 
uh, was writing his memoirs. Yeah, the image is, is really nice. It's a, it's a guy named Beto who was part of this, this group of bank robbers in the 80s called Los Destructores, the Destroyers. It's in Peru. It's in Peru, yeah. yeah. And I met him, and um, he, someone told him I was a writer, and he said, I'm a writer too. And he'd, he was a very powerful guy in, in, in one prison, and he was transferred. And he told me that when he got to the, the new prison, he basically just brought a bag of clothes and the manuscript he was working on. Mm-hmm. And since he was new in the prison, he didn't have a bunk. And he'd lost all his sort of backup, and he was sort of like stranger in a strange land. So he's sleeping on the floor, and one day a pipe bursts. And his prison, his cell, the cell he shares, floods. And, uh, and he raced up and saved his novel, you know, which was all soaked. And so then he, you know, he has his soaked manuscript. And what he did was he took over the yard in his, in his block and spread the pages of his book out on the, on, on the floor and put a little pe- a rock on top of each one so the wind wouldn't blow it away. And then he sat on a brick in the middle of it protecting his book mm-hmm. because the yard is where everyone plays soccer, where, you know, the guys lift weights, where people walk around and, you know, talk shit. And it's like where life is lived in this particular prison and in most prisons, right? And so for someone, particularly someone new, to say, no, the block is mine today, you know, the, the, the patio, the, the yard is mine. So it takes this real courage, you know. And, and he said anytime someone would step out on the yard um, and, be, you know, make some complaint about, hey, what are you doing, you know, he would stand up and he's a really tall, imposing guy. And, and he would say, if you mess with my book, you mess with me, you know. <laughs> and, um, and the, the t- you know, like, you know, I'm a writer. I've written a bunch of books. And, I, you know, I, I, I care a lot about my sentences and my, my prose and all that. But, but, like, would I be willing to, like, defend my book in a Peruvian prison. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think that, that that's a litmus test like a lot of writers that I know would fail, probably. <laughs> yeah, and also there's just so much uh, wrapped up in it in terms of, uh, I just remember this detail where you asked him if you could see it, and he said something like, it's, it's not ready. It's not ready yet, yeah. But the idea that he's writing for some purpose that is maybe not even related to the purpose that you and I as writers, like trying to get something published or whatever, like he's... It's his life, and it's something about the process, maybe. I do think it was cathartic for him. He he told me that when, he, after they would do a big hit, his crew, Los Destructores, would disappear to a beach house somewhere, like in on the Peruvian coast. You know, they would they would did a lot of robberies of, of armored vehicles. You know, so like big heists. You know, mm-hmm. and they would they would kind of vanish, and party for a week, and then go back and 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 uh, and take stock again. And he would write at these. You know, he would write down everything that had happened. And then when they had to go, he would burn it because he, there was no point in like having, you know, evidence or, you know, some kind of like <laughs> an account, an of, account of the crime you just committed. Um, it's really, really moving. You know, uh, it has stayed with me. He eventually did get me a copy of a book and it's by hand and it's uh, it has a co- like a hand drawn cover. It's a really amazing artifact. And it, wow. it's hard to read, like both because of its content, because it describes his childhood and it's a very, very stark descriptions of, you know, his life in prisons and, you know. All that, but it's also literally hard to read because it's it's his handwriting. Mm-hmm. It's just photocopied pages of his handwriting, and some of the pages were waterlogged at some. Apparently, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, then, um, how did you find that guy? Well, I started going to prisons in Peru. When my first book came out, and then something about the, the 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 places I visited just stuck with me, and I just kept going back. And he was one of the people I met um, probably pretty early on. You know, I'd visited Rikers, for example, in nineteen ninety. Nine probably, and and it's an awful, awful place. It's probably worse now, you know. But it was it was an awful place, an awful experience. Um, but when I visited the prisons in Peru, um, particularly the two main prisons in Lima for for men are Castro Castro and Lurigancho. And Lurigancho, the first time I visited was you know between ten and eleven thousand men in a space that had been built for around two thousand. Mm. You know, so it really was like something out of the inferno. Like I, I it was so astonishing. I, I had no no point of, of, of comparison. There was just nothing like, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, it's, it's, it's a cliche to say that, but I really had never seen anything like it. And, you know, I was absolutely fascinated. It was terrifying the first time I went, but it eventually became so familiar. You know, I, I came to have friends inside. I came to like, I spent years and years going. Would you stay in the prison? I would go like, say, uh, and teach a class there for, you know, three months at a time. Oh, right. I read that you yeah. taught a writing class there. Right. Uh-huh. I, I spent a night in the prison once in 2011, but mostly I would just go and spend a day there, spend, you know, go there in the morning and leave in the afternoon and just stay all day. 
my relationship with that particular place affected both of both my my journalism and my um, and my fiction. Mm-hmm. One of the unique f- features of Rigancho was that the international blocks, the, the the drug trafficking blocks, had elections. You know, I wrote an eight thousand word piece for Harper's about this, but I had twenty thousand words of stuff. Yeah, you know, that just yeah. ended up flowing into my novel that I was working on at the time. Uh-huh. Let's let's just start back about a little bit about how you got into story storytelling and sure. being a novelist and um first of all you grew up in Birmingham. I did. Was there something in your childhood that set you off on a writing path? I mean, I was always a reader. Mm-hmm. Uh when we first moved to the United States, I didn't I didn't speak English obviously. I was like 3 3 and a half from Peru. From Peru. Which was just, you know, normal and and uh, but when I first started like preschool for the first month, I didn't speak a word of English. Hmm. And my parents say that, like, on the way to school and coming home from school, I would just talk nonstop. In and Spanish it, or in English? First in Spanish and then in English. Uh-huh. But it kind of like I, I, like I, I was preparing myself for, like, a day of, like, being deaf-mute, you know, and then, like, just spilling out my guts when I got home. Huh. And then it evolved into my father would tell me stories on the on the way to school. What kind of stories? Oh, just made up stories about um characters that he invented. I remember there was a giant named uh Polyfemo, like poly- Polyphemus, I think. Protolito was another one of the characters. He had a big nose. Um they were all kind of cartoonish characters that he invented and one of them lived in the in like the valley and like, you know, snored a lot and I I, I don't remember really well the, the the characters, but I do remember that I was just fascinated by the the continuing saga and then my sisters were like absolutely bored and you know they were older you know eight ten years older than me and so you know for like 30 minutes on the way to school they have to listen to this the saga of protolito and polyfemo <laughs> and just like hating life i'm sure they're you know they're like young teenagers so that, that's the first story i remember like being really really into and then you know we had this thing in my house where my my sisters and, my, and i my mom after dinner we'd clear the table and everyone had to do their homework, and no one could get up from the table until the homework was done. Mm-hmm. Until everyone's homework was done. Oh. Which is, you know, I was the youngest, so I was, like, done right away, and then I'm just, like, sitting there. And it wasn't like I could go watch TV, because we weren't allowed to watch TV. I would just read. And usually I would read whatever they were reading, you know? So I remember reading Milan Kundera when I was, like, 10 or something, you know? Like, not it's understanding heavy. anything. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were whatever they were reading in high school, yeah. I was reading in middle school. yeah. And I, I loved it. I loved reading all those books, even though I didn't understand them, you know. And I, and I I never thought about being a journalist so much that I wanted to be a novelist. And I did want to be a novelist. And after, like when you went to college, did you sort of try to set yourself on that path? Or were you trying to sort out how will I make a living at this? No, I never really worried about that. I just had a, a blind confidence in the universe, you know. Like now it seems very harrowing, you know, to think like, I, I had no plan B, you know, I had no, no plan B at all. The early writing, what that fiction writing, what was that informed by for you? Like where where were you drawing from when you were writing those stories? You asked a, a moment ago about sort of important experiences or, or, or kind of moments. Um, you know, after college, I, I taught for two years in, in public schools here in New York City. Huh. And then I went back to Peru. And I, I had a Fulbright and I taught photography in this neighborhood called San Juan de Lurigancho. It's the same district where it's not a neighborhood; it's a district with like a million people, um, and it's where those two prisons are that I mentioned. And I just rented a room in that neighborhood and taught photography and hung out in the, in the neighborhood. And you know w- what I was doing was researching a book. I didn't know that's what I was doing, mm. but that's what I was doing. And it's like everything I've written after that really is informed by that those you know eight months that I was living in that room above this like tiny little store. I was paying like $30 a month in rent, you know, playing soccer every afternoon with the kids in the neighborhood. I was barely older than the kids in the neighborhood, so I was basically a kid in the neighborhood mm-hmm. just doing everything that the, that my friends, who were also my students, but, you know, it was like very informal teaching that I was doing, everything they were doing, with the exception of going to school. Like, I wasn't going to school. Right? <laughs> and there's so many things about that time there that so many things I learned then just allowed me to know a city like Lima in a completely different way. Had you been going there when you were younger? To Lima, of course. Yeah. But to this particular part of Lima, no, because mm. Lima's, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's a city of, you know, eight million, eight and a half million people. You know, it's huge. You know, there's a kind of middle class center of Lima, and then there's the rest of Lima, and that that part, the, you know, the quote unquote rest of Lima is where all the economic growth has been, and all the change, and all the, the vitality that 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 makes Lima what it is today. 
you know, but that's just recently. That's in the last 15 years. But, you know, when I was a kid, you, you would never you would never go to those parts of the city, you know, because mm. they were thought of as, as kind of endless, you know, slums. So the part of Lima that I knew, you know, was Miraflores, San Isidro, San Borja, Surco, you know, like four districts, San Miguel maybe, you know, like that's it. And uh, and you'd go to the center, you know, to do tourism and see the cathedral and stuff like that. You wouldn't cross the river north. You wouldn't go to the Rimac unless you had family there, you know. You wouldn't go to La Victoria because you would, you know, you might get robbed. And you certainly wouldn't go to San Juan de Rigancho because the entire district was thought of as a prison, you know. It's like one giant prison. You know, mm-hmm. in the in the popular imagination, San Juan de Rigancho, the district, and Rigancho, the prison, it's like the same thing. Uh-huh. And um, it had such a bad reputation. I remember my, my students, my friends, would tell me that when they were applying for jobs, they would borrow someone's address. Because if you put, I'm from Lurigancho, you put, you know, your address and says Lurigancho, it's like you're writing from prison, you know? Once you've had that experience of living there, the prison, other places, can you then sort of just use that as a jumping off point? Or do you actually go say, I want to actually spend some time in this neighborhood or this restaurant because I want to write about a fictional restaurant like that neighbor, like that no, one? No, I've always been bad about at that. I've always been bad at, at actual research when it comes to novels. And I'll give you an example. My second book, um, At Now We Walk in Circles, has a lot to do with the theater. I went so far, uh, when the protagonist studied at the National School of Theater in, mm-hmm. in a city like Lima. And I went so far as to call the school and ask if I could sit in on classes. And, you know, at the first, you know, like, sort of like, let me transfer you, like, I just quit. <laughs> like, the smart thing would have been just to show up. But there's just, there's, there is when it comes to novel writing almost principled laziness that I have when it comes to research because I I, I sort of want it to happen organically. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, like basically like all the leftovers of all the journalism I do ends up in my fiction somewhere. Yeah. But if it's like, you know, I'm going to s- spend three months going to classes at the school of theater, it's like I can't be bothered, you know? I, yeah. find, I find it really difficult to do. There's just some kind of block. But your, but, well, your books also, they're not anchored in like extreme realism. Like... It's a fictional place in that yeah. novel. It's a, it's a country, but the country's not named. So it's not like trying to really exactly, exactly. nail down the details of what happens in that particular mm-hmm. drama school. Yeah, right? yeah, and also like I, you know, I've, I've been to enough workshops that you know I feel like I can, I know that world. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can evoke the feeling of uh, of being in a class like that. Yeah, the feeling of like putting your work up and standing naked before your peers and having them destroy you. Yeah. That, like an MFA thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know all about that. Yeah. Where did journalism first come into it? You know, I've always loved to read long form. I remember reading Harper's a lot in the nineties and, and they really let writers be writers. All the pieces sounded different. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they really let people's prose style come through. And, uh, and I appreciated that about the magazine back then. And, um, so it was my, my dream was to write for Harper's. Oh, I read some piece that I liked, and I met the writer. Uh, it was Tom Bissell had written a piece for Harper's, and I was like, "Hey, who was your editor on that piece? The piece was fantastic." And he said, "Oh, you know, you know, Bill Wasik." And I was like, "Hey, I have an idea for a story. Can you connect me?" So I remember, I think I, it was Tom, and I asked him, "Hey, how do you write a pitch?" You know, I'd never written a pitch before. And he's like, "Basically, you have to answer two questions: like, you know, what the story is, and why you're the person to write it." And I was like, "Oh, cool, I can do that." So I wrote a two thousand word pitch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I teach at the J School at Columbia now, and like if my students wrote me a fucking two thousand word pitch, I would just f- freak out. You know, Bill Wasik, God bless him, read it. Was this the prison elections? No, piece? it was my first piece, which was uh, on the Peruvian elections in in two thousand six, ah. where the current president of Peru, Umala, uh, was running for the first time as kind of like a an outsider. Um, uh, ethno-nationalist, a kind of radical figure, uh, really aligned with Chavez, like super interesting election. And that, that's when, when Bill sent me down there. And, and I remember very well, well I remember where I, I was standing in my, in my uh, living room in, in Oakland at the time, you know, that, that moment where you get, you know, they're like, yes, your pitch has been accepted. Let's go, you know, let's make the plans. Just absolute euphoria, you know, and then panic, you know, that comes immediately after, like the euphoria lasted like 35 seconds. And then I was like, oh, shit, now I have to do this. You was know? your panic more in the gathering the information or in the writing? Everything, everything. My, my panic was just a complete and total panic. And I, I got to say, actually, I, I almost, I, I, I kind of forgot this, I guess, but it wasn't my first long form, but it was my first long form in English because I'd been writing for Etiqueta Negra already. Oh, yeah. 
We should describe that magazine a little bit because yeah, people may not know it. Etiqueta is kind of like the the, the Peruvian New Yorker. Mm-hmm. That, that's the way it's sort of thought of itself for years, with sort of more playful design. You know, so it's not so sort of so static. And Julio, who's the founding editor, I met him after I published my first piece of fiction, my first story in the New Yorker. He contacted me and he was like, "Hey, you want to write for us?" And I was like, "Sure." And and that's where I sort of started playing with the form. Uh-huh. There was like less pressure in some ways because you know there was like no money involved really <laughs> it was fun i wrote a piece about the mall of america it's, you know the mall of america is a terrible place i've never been but there's uh, a roller coaster inside right there's now. a roller coaster right i wrote i wrote it i wrote oh, i wrote I, I i i ran around a couple times i got my portrait drawn at the mall of america i went to church at the mall of america on sunday morning it was all it was the whole thing you know but i had no guidance i had didn't really know what i was doing i was just but i think it was it was important in the sense that i I'd done a little bit, enough of it to know sort of the basics. And then before I went, Bill gave me this pep talk and was like, I, I mean, he must have sensed that I was like shitting myself. It was like, look, man, just go and like write down everything, talk to everybody and like, don't be scared. So I did. Do you, are you naturally able to go up to people, connect with them, talk to them? Is that something that was difficult for you to? It's, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's absolutely terrifying for me. I mean, I was a public school teacher. That sort of disabused me of the notion that I'm shy and like, because you can't be a shy 10th grade English teacher in in New York City. You have to control the classroom. And whether you do it because you know a lot or whether you do it because you've studied techniques of classroom management, which I had not, or whether you do it because you're just like, whenever the kids are trying to be funny, I'm going to be funnier and let them know they can't fuck with me. Like that's, that was my route. Like, <laughs> the third one? The third one, yeah. Uh-huh. I was like, you know, oh, you guys think I'm the young teacher you can fuck with? Like, no. And I, I stumbled on that solution only because I had, didn't have the other two as options. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good at this. I can, I, can, I can play in a situation. But having said that, like, you know, when it comes to just cold calling people or, like, cold approaching people, you know, one of the most important scenes and how that, that piece ended up uh, working was because I was in a, on a bus and when the bus happened to go by this place I'd seen on the news the, the previous day where there'd been some kind of fiasco at this campaign headquarters and and one disaffected group of his party had taken it over. And uh, and I saw that the bus was going right by it. And I was like, oh, shit, I saw that on the news last night. And I just, and they let me off. And I crossed, you know, on this overpass and went down and just walked right in. Like, no one noticed me. And then I was like, shit, I'm here. What do I do? And I just kind of sat in a corner doing what Bill told me to do, which is write down everything until like somebody came and said like, Hey, who are you? And then I was so relieved, you know, so relieved. And I was like, Hey, I'm actually, you know, like Daniel, I'm trying to write this report and you know, who are you? You know? And then, and then I ended up making all these connections via that one guy who, you know, ended up illuminating this entire part of the story. And he was from, from this small town. There was a group of small towns in Puno who were, you know, some of the, the biggest economic players in, in certain key sectors of the city who were all, you know, deep into this campaign. And they were running with Umala, even though his brother was more radical and sort of more represented them, but they thought he could win. Mm-hmm. I ended up spending days and days with these these cousins who were all from these little set of hometowns uh, up in Puno, and they sh- showed me a part of the city that I'd never conceived of, like did not know existed, like an entire social circuit, an entire... You know, they had their own country clubs where everyone spoke Aymara, not Spanish. Hmm. This entire world and I, that, that yeah, I found in, in just incredibly illuminating. Basically because you got off the bus. Because I got off the bus and just sat in a corner. I don't think it, it hasn't gotten easier. You know, like nowadays, you know, I mean, I've definitely done the thing where like there's a story I want. I've gotten on, on, a, on a plane before just to go to Lima to knock on someone's door without knowing if they were going to. And knowing that the story either will happen or not happen on whether or not they look me in the eye and let me in. Yeah. And that's, you know, really scary. Now I'd rather them see my face than, like, call them on the phone. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put these gentlemen on hold for a moment and uh, tell you about a sponsor that is sponsoring our show. That's why I'm telling you about it. The sponsor is Home Chef, and Home Chef is going to make it easy for you to make restaurant-quality meals, RQMs, as a friend of mine says, right at home in less than 30 minutes. They deliver fresh ingredients right to your house, and they deliver recipes, and you can make these fantastic meals. I've been telling you about them on the show. I'm going to tell you about them again. Here we go. 
rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers, and goat cheese, maple miso glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple, or even a Parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans. You can make these meals in your house in less than 30 minutes because HomeFresh is going to deliver everything you need to do it, including step-by-step instructions. These are meals designed by chefs. They're delicious. They're elegant. They can be gluten-free if you want them to be. They can be vegetarian if you want them to be. Low-cal, low-carb, whatever you need. Home Chef's got it. They're going to deliver it to your house, and you're going to make the meal yourself in under 30 minutes. And if you go right now to homechef.com slash longform, that's homechef.com slash longform, and then use the promo code longform at checkout, and you'll get 20 bucks off. Pretty good deal. Start making RQMs. Thanks, Home Chef. Let's get back to these guys. I want to go back to something because you said you started writing for Etiqueta Negra and, you know, then you then you were writing for Harper's. And it made me curious about when you sit down to write, do you have different approaches or styles if you're writing in Spanish or writing in English? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's gotten, I think they've gotten to be more similar as uh-huh. my Spanish has gotten better. Uh-huh. Keep in mind that I did my all of my education in English. And when I was in, you know, when I was 18, my Spanish was pretty miserable. Hmm. It was like, you know, it was like domestic Spanish, like, hey, mom, I'm hungry. What's for dinner? You know, I was unable to have like conversations about politics in Spanish, unable to have like high level conversations about literature in Spanish. Was that at some point in your youth, like a choice, like you didn't want to, or you were, you were rejecting something or you just, you just didn't, I think it was, was, no, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. I think it was that the, the worst years of the war, the years after my uncle disappeared, the years when there were car bombs every night in Lima and power outages every night in Lima coincided with the years of my adolescence, you know, basically when you're pulling away from your parents anyway. And I was just being a regular, normal American teenager. Yeah. Can you talk about what happened to your uncle? Uh, yeah, my uncle was a was a union leader, part of a really far left party in Peru in the eighties. He disappeared in December nineteen eighty nine, mm-hmm. and his disappearance hung over my entire childhood. You know, from from eighty nine until until many years later. And uh, and one of my first, you know, when I, right after college, I went and spent three months trying to find him. You know. And I guess I was thinking that I was going to write that as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But then the more I talked to people, the more I realized that a lot of people were not telling me the truth. And so I ended up writing kind of a composite story in, as fiction, which appears in my first book. And then my second, my novel, my first novel, Lost City Radio, is kind of an even further developed version of, of, of what might have happened to him. You know, like I wanted to write a piece of nonfiction, but I couldn't pull out the different strands of the story. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't tell what was real and what was fiction mm-hmm. from what people were telling me. You know, even family members that I spoke to, I, the stories just didn't, didn't, they couldn't be corroborated and they didn't, they didn't match up. They didn't, you know, people claiming ignorance of things that other people said, though, they definitely knew this, you know? Yeah. So even now you don't know the real... I have a pretty good idea of yeah. what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you don't have a desire now to write a nonfiction version of it or... No, I don't. I think for my family... The novel served that purpose yeah. already. Yeah, I keep remembering these things as we're talking. Cause, uh, it's not like I sit and think about these things all the time. But yeah. th- this goes back to that first question you asked, like mo- important moments in your yeah, yeah. development. That was an imp- that was a very important thing that happened. Thing that I did. You know, and then even now I still have in my office up at Columbia, like all my files from that investigation. Oh wow! So you were starting to say that your English and Spanish writing have sort of come closer together over time. Yeah, they have because my Spanish has gotten better. And I used to feel when I was writing in Spanish, it was like like someone had pulled, you know, every third page out of the dictionary. <laughs> and now I feel like it's maybe, you know, every seventh page, you know. And it used to be that if I, in English, I wanted to explain an idea, I, I would, you know, have seven ways of expressing that idea. And in Spanish, I might have two. Uh-huh. And now I feel like the the... I'm a little bit closer in Spanish than I used to be. In part, it's because I'm, you know, I'm married to a Colombian woman and we speak Spanish at home. In part, it's because you know most of the radio that I've done is in Spanish, yeah. you know, and that's that's been a big a big project of mine. Let's talk about how Radio Ambulante started. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, how, how did how did it come about? Because you, to my recollection, it started when you still had to explain to something like literally what a podcast was. That's <laughs> like 2012, 2011, something yeah. like that. 
So I should go back, and in 2007, when Lost City Radio came, uh, was published, my, my first novel, I got a call from the BBC, and they said, hey, you know, we read your book, and would you like to do a, host a radio documentary for us, you know? Mm. And I was like, yeah, sure. And they said, okay, so, you know, pitch us some ideas. And, and I pitched them an idea, and I should say that even before that, like, my family is a radio family. My dad was a, a soccer announcer. Really? When he was a kid, yeah. I mean, from ages, like you know, 15 to like 21, he was uh, a soccer announcer for a radio station in, in Arequipa, huh. which is you know, one of the cities in southern Peru. And so, you know, radio was part of our, our lives growing up. You know, we'd also hear these stories about my dad and I have lots of uncles and cousins working in radio. We basically like were taught not to have a southern accent by listening to NPR <laughs> as, as kids. So this was, I was like, you know, BBC's calling. I was thrilled, you know? Yeah, that's straight to the top. Yeah. So I did this radio documentary. It was it was a really great experience. They sent a producer from London, and it was about Andean migration to Lima. Hmm. I visited this town called Corongo in, in a region called Ancash, where my, my grandfather's from. You know, we did a ton of interviews. Uh, and most of them were in Spanish, but a lot of them were in English, and hmm. I would translate, and the producer didn't speak any Spanish. And um, essentially what happened is the producer went back to London, and then three weeks later sent me a rough cut, and he dropped almost all of the Spanish interviews. Why? Well, I think because he didn't understand them. I think because for aesthetic reasons, you can't have voiceover for a 45-minute radio documentary. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, It doesn't sound good. He didn't understand. So he, right. couldn't, he couldn't value what good tape sounded like. He couldn't edit it. That was disappointing. Mm-hmm. You know, It was a disappointing experience in the end, even though uh, you know, the radio documentary is good. I feel like so much got left out. So, so that was at the point where I was like, ah, oh, man, what would it be like if we had a space in Spanish you know, for those voices. It was just an idea, just like a, a little thought. And then many years later, 2010, late 2010, I was I was working on this this novel and I would work in circles. I just finished a draft that I was super unsatisfied with. And Matt Power was in in the Bay over the New Year's break, Christmas break. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we went out for coffee. And at the time he had that fellowship in, in Michigan. Right, yeah. And so him and Jessica were at a coffee shop, and I was. They were telling me about what it was like living in Michigan and and the fellowship, and and I was like, oh, I've always wanted to, to you know, that, that'd be cool to do. And he's like, All you need is an idea, man. I was like, oh, I got an idea. And I was like, I want to do this American Life in Spanish. And they were like, Oh, that's a great idea. You should do it. You know, I always remember that. You know, and of course, since Matt passed away, I it's even more vivid. You know, yeah, the last time I saw him, I think. And so a couple of days later, I told Carolina, my wife, Hey, I had this conversation with with a friend of mine. And she said, uh, she was like, oh, we should do it. You know, we should do it. She was in this terrible job that she wanted to quit. And I'd just written this novel that was terrible. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a novelist anymore. And uh, I had a little bit of money saved up. So I was like, oh, why don't we just, can it be that hard? You know? And uh, which is the the confidence of, of, of the ignorant person. Yeah. You know? The same confidence that would say, like, oh, yeah, I can do an, a, an investigative reporting piece on my missing uncle. Right. You know, in a post-war Peru at age 22 with rudimentary Spanish and, you know, rudimentary knowledge of the politics. Sure. Why not? So kind of that same feeling of ordering on bluster. And we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything. And we spent a year sort of working on it. So we're like, let's see. Like, let's learn, you know, what do we need? What What programs do we use to edit, you know? How do you do a radio interview? Like, let's, we talked to everybody. We ended up putting a team together. And the following year, we launched the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually the first Kickstarter ever done for a podcast. And um, we, we produced an audio sampler of like 30 minutes. And we raised like $46,000. We did a pilot season that year. And then we did our first full season the following year. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting our fifth season. And it's on radio stations now, too. In Latin America, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in Latin America. We were on Radio Bilingue, which is kind of a, a Spanish-language network, public radio network, mostly in California and the West. But, you know, our audience is digital. Like, the work that it requires to take an episode of ours and then package it into 29-minute, you know, blocks uh-huh. so it can go out on a satellite. And then you get no metrics on who listened to it. It's just not worth it. You know? Really? So it's more about it's more about podcast distribution. Oh, strictly. absolutely. What's the sort of confines of, like, how you would describe a Radio Amelante story? Like, you, you said, you know, This American Life in Spanish, but... Yeah, I mean, that's the elevator pitch that, yeah. that, that like, I, I... I mean, we've used it a bunch because it saves you from having to explain certain things. And right. it also, like, in the United States, it functions as, like, a, people are like, wow, yeah. that that's, doesn't exist they can already? Get that. They get yeah, it right, right away. Yeah. And, 
And they also say, generally, the next question is, that doesn't exist already? And I'm like, no, it doesn't. In fact, we had to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I wouldn't, like, go to Ira's house and say, like, oh, I, I make the <laughs> Spanish language, just American life. You know, I would feel super embarrassed by that. I think we differ from from those shows in, in, in a few ways. Um, but we're certainly inspired by some of the great shows that I'm sure, you know, a lot of your listeners listen to, too. You know, Radio Lab and yeah, Spring course, Life, all yeah. the Gimlet shows. Yeah. How would you say it's different? I would say it's different in that the very nature of trying to tell stories for a Latin American audience, where we'll do a story from Dominican Republic one week, and from Guatemala the next, and from Chile the next, and from, you know, uh, Mexico the next. It's like we all speak the same language, but, you know, those are, those are such different places, right? And so what we're trying to do is create commonalities, and we have to, even more so than a show like this American Life, like sort of like extract universalities. Mm-hmm. In a way, and highlight them, and at the same way, I do, in the same, at the same time, do it very gracefully, so it doesn't feel like, like the the neon sign. Like, Here's the message, you yeah. know. But we were told very early on that the podcast would not be a success because they said Puerto Ricans only want to hear about Puerto Rico, and Colombians only care about Colombia. If it's not about Mexico, Mexicans don't want to hear it. And it, I felt in my gut that that was bullshit. Uh-huh. In my experience as a Latin American, as a Latino living in the United States. Is that I go to a party when you know I lived in Oakland. I throw these parties, and you know Mexicans and Chileans and and Peruvians and you know Colombians would show up, and we'd all be hanging out and dancing, and and our American friends would be there too, and our black friends and our Asian friends would be there, and there was just this this thing that Oakland had, you know. Yeah. And it feels to me that that's a thing that is happening in the United States, and that the United States is is a laboratory for Latin American integration in some ways. And I also felt because of my work with Etiqueta Negra that when you have, you know, the internet, when you have a generation of editors across Latin America talking to each other, exchanging articles, exchanging contacts, you know, that we're not siloed anymore. And that, you know, if you read a magazine like Etiqueta Negra, they'll have a, you know, a feature from Mexico, a feature from Colombia. And there's magazines like that in every country that are introducing writers, you know, from Peru to audiences in Colombia and introducing writers from Colombia to audiences in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then I just feel like the conversation that Latin Americans are having with Latin Americans is very different than it was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's a space for that. Now, the growth that's coming for podcasts in Latin America is extraordinary. You know, the, the possibilities are, you know, insane because there is nobody doing, you know, it's just starting. It's yeah. just, just getting started, you know, and it's just getting started here in the United States as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, Have other people kind of come along after after you started? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely interest in podcasts in Latin America. Uh, but, you know, most of the podcasts in Latin America, as in the United States, are people talking to each other, mm-hmm. you know, like what we're doing now. Yeah, right. Because it's also the cheapest to produce. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, there's, it, it can be great. And, yeah. you know, it can be very, very illuminating and fun. And, you know, the most, some of those popular podcasts around are people talking to each other. You know, the Political Gab Fest or Another Round or, you know, an endless number of of, of fantastic podcasts that we can we can talk about. Um, but what we want to do, what we do at Radio Ambulante is, you know, reported, produced pieces. Mm-hmm. That's expensive, uh, that is time intensive. Yeah, we're the only ones doing it. Yeah. We're the only ones doing it. And we're the only ones doing it because, um, you know, most journalists in Latin America are working three jobs and don't have time to do this stuff, you know? So How we. How do you have time? <laughs> I don't. I, I, well, I really love what I do. So I, you know, if you love what you do, you there's time for it. Yeah. I mean, I feel really blessed to do, to get to do the things that I want to do. I mean, I also like, um, you know, at any given moment, I'm neglecting something that's due tomorrow, you know, and like feeling harried and rushed all the time. Do you still think of yourself as a novelist first? Yes. And how does that inform, I mean, these other projects, does that make them feel, do they feel to you like your your primary job, what you think about, what you're invested in is your novels, and then this is like a release from that? Yeah, but I think it also makes me think about the um, the same narrative dynamism that I want from my novels. Like, I want people to read my books and, like, stay up all night reading them. I'm just as demanding of Rambulante pieces or of my long form or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, like, it makes, I think it, it informs the work at Rambulante in a way that, um, and certainly this is not just me, you know, we have a great team and we have editors and producers and, you know, they're, they all, everyone brings some incredible talent to the, to the conversation, but we try to create things that have that same movement and that same energy. You know, like a like a like book that you stay up all night listening to. Yeah. The other thing that, in, in a way, it's an antidote to novel writing because it's collaborative. You know, like novel writing is you and the blank page and just you. 
maybe every six months you show you know a chapter to a friend or something uh-huh. just so that you can be reminded that there's a reader out there but mostly it's just you and it could be you for five six seven years you know you've done some collaborations in different cases with like reply all and the thing with radio lab i think at one point and just listening to those it just struck me i don't know how this translates from a business perspective but like you have such an advantage because like you can speak to a population that those people can't speak to and like mm. you could still do the story for with the reply all people yeah that's like was a brilliant story like that was a that was fun yeah. incredibly riveting story about this woman who launched an entire political revolution yeah. on facebook um but like you have something they don't have which is you can speak to an entirely different audience about that same story as well it just seems like uh in terms yeah. of like where everything is going like that would be a huge advantage yeah, there's a couple things i think that 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 work in our favor I mean, one is that we can we can get big in the United States and get big in Latin America and uh or we can get like medium big in the United States and medium big in Latin America and then in aggregate be very big mm-hmm. you know um and then you know the next stage of of development in in podcast technology is you know dynamic geolocated ads which is a jargony way of saying like if someone's listening to us in Colombia or in Mexico or in Brooklyn we can sell ads that are for each different market, which is going to help us, you know, monetize in a way that's essentially uh, seamless and painless for the user. That both sounds fantastic and also makes me wonder what the, like, younger Daniel writing, like, his first short stories and novels would think of the Daniel who knows the phrase uh, dynamic uh, geotargeting <laughs> advertising. It's like, what do you have to do these? This is what you have to do these days to like make yeah. your uh, chosen creative profession work. Is like you have to know that shit. Yeah. Well, but you know, it's it's been funny to watch watch myself uh, get to know sort of like this this market that I yeah. or this this industry that I had nothing know you know knew nothing about, and then being able to compare and contrast it with like the literary scene and like publishing and all that. You know, uh, radio people are so nice, generally speaking podcasters, radio, and, you know, public radio types, all of this is just, like, you know, in a way that, like, the, the literary scene, you know, is, can sometimes isn't, you know, I should say. Um, <laughs> but a polite way to put it. Yeah. yeah, and I'm not sure why that is, but in terms of the creative tribes, I've found radio people uh, to be really collaborative, ge- you know, genuinely, like, happy when other people have success, you know, and maybe it's because we're in Spanish, so no one feels like we're competing with them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like... Uh, when we when we pitch ideas for collaboration to any of the big shows, they're always interested, you know, like and then when we have some success, you know, everyone seems like genuinely happy for us. And, yeah. and like people, people respect us, people who, who, you know, they're like, I love Radio Mulete. I don't speak a word of Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, why do you, wait, wait, why do you love it exactly? But whatever. No, it's great. You know, yeah, we love just the idea of it. Yeah, they love the idea of it, you know, which is, you know. It's better than them not loving the idea of it. Yeah, yeah. Where you know, in, in the literary world, like I've I've definitely been at those like New York, you know, dinner parties or cocktail parties where like, you know, after the second bottle of wine, people are like talking shit about other writers who didn't deserve this prize and who, how could they sell that many books? You know, readers are stupid. Da 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 or this. And at, at which point I'm just like super bored. You know, like I don't want to be in these conversations that are all catty and. Did you face that at all? Because you you were one of those New Yorker like X under Y, forty under forty, or thirty under thirty kind of things. Twenty under point. forty. Twenty under forty. Yes. Should yes. be forty under forty. It sounds. I think better. it should be like twenty under five seven. <laughs> uh, my, my friend, uh, my friend Robbie always says that we should do the the list of short American writers. But I imagine as someone who who you know you went to Iowa Writers Workshop and like that's what a lot of those people are aiming for in their minds probably is to have that mm-hmm. and then. Did you experience any sort of like, oh shit, now everyone's, now now I have to be that guy or now people f- have put me in some box that's sort of like that? No, because um, when that came out, is uh, it was happened in 2010 and I was in the middle of that terrible draft mm. of that novel, mm. a draft by the way that I ended up throwing in the trash can and starting over in 2000. So that draft is not the dra- did not lead to the novel? I mean, it, I mean, it, it did. It, did. But... it was like three and a half years of throat clearing. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, it, it, I mean, I threw it all out. I kept like eight pages and, wow. then, and then wrote it again. Like there was no way it could have gone to my head because I'm in the midst of this terrible creative crisis. You know, there was in the midst of this just kind of depression of like there's no way I shouldn't. I'm a fraud. I shouldn't be a writer. So my own self-doubt at the time of that like big reveal of like, oh, the 2040 
was so intense and overwhelming that it drowned out any other voices that I might have heard of people being catty or whatever. Yeah. I couldn't give a shit about people <laughs> being catty because in my brain, I was like, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud already. So it's like, what do I care if someone else says that? I'm, I agree with them, you right, know? They're right. How did you get out of that? I started a podcast, you know, like something totally different. I pitched the piece about the prison election in Peru. Just set it aside for six months. Mm -hmm. The decision to throw it away was, I think, a very difficult decision, but uh, something I'm really proud of, you know, because, you know, it was a 400-page draft. It's a lot. That is so much has been poured into something like that to throw it away. Yeah. I I mean, you know, it's on my computer somewhere, you know, it's not like it's in like throw it in the fire or any place, you know, Um, but it's it's gone in the sense that I like, I like, no, starting over. You know, so I went and reported that that piece about the prisons. And when I came back, I had all that extra information. And suddenly the prison, which had not been part of the first draft of that novel, was an integral part of the, the finished version, the, the version that ended up being published. You know, huh. That to me sort of like ratifies the decision. You know, it was just whenever I'm having trouble with fiction, just put it aside and go out into the world. You know, go go put yourself in a place that's uncomfortable and see what happens. And I do feel like the pressure of being stuck with one project um, and, and, you know, hitting that wall again and again and again isn't as useful as sometimes people make it out to be. You know, you know I think sometimes it's better to set it aside and put yourself somewhere else. You mm-hmm. know, It's procrastination, but procrastination in some direction, some valuable other direction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one would hope. Yeah. yeah. And how do you decide how to take what pieces you want to do now? Like you did a New York Times magazine piece about gang members. And is that the kind of thing where you say, I've got something, I'm going to go pitch it somewhere or, and how, how, like, it's more a question about like, how do all these pieces fit together in terms of how you decide what you're doing now versus yesterday? Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a good question because, um, because the one thing about Red Mullet that's frustrating is that it, it's so time intensive mm-hmm. that I have very limited time to go do my own reporting and that I have to choose between like my reporting and my fiction writing. And because my role at Red is essentially as the sort of like editorial director, you know, like, in, you know, working with a team of really smart people trying to figure out the direction of the show and also indivi- working on individual scripts. But, you know, I'm the last person who sees the script, you know, before they go into the studio. It's a lot of work. And it's um, the, fr- the the frustrating part it can be is that it's not so much that I get to choose what projects I work on. It's sort of that I have to, you know, it's like I have to choose when I'm able to work on a project and then see what I can do in that limited space of time, you know. Mm-hmm. I've done a bunch of pieces now about criminal justice, both in Peru and the United States. Yeah. And I'm pretty much, like, done. I've done, I've done, I just finished a piece for Pop-Up Magazine that's sort of set in that same world of, like, Central Valley, former gang members. And it was tough to report, and I don't want to do that world again. Yeah. You know, like, um, I've learned a lot, and it's a very, very interesting world, and it's a, it's a very troubling part of, you know, American culture. Like, it's just, and it's, I, you know, I could talk to you for an hour about why I think it's, it's almost like we designed that to happen uh-huh. you know as a, as a as a as a political economic system you know it's like we need disposable lives and we need something to sop up those disposable lives and that's prisons and gangs but i'm also like i want to do something else man you know like i i have a book of stories i need to finish this summer i am doing a translation of a of a book um fiction or not fiction a really fantastic incredible book of letters oh. Letters that this uh, Colombian poet named, um, Colum- sorry, Colombian painter named Emma Reyes sent to her friend in Bogota in the 70s and 80s, telling her life story, almost like a, a novelized memoir told through letters. I, I can't believe that I'm doing it. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I was reading it and I made the mistake of tweeting out, like, I really want to translate this book. And then before I knew it, I was signing a contract. I was translating this book. So there's one more story that I want to ask you about. It's not even a story. It's like a short essay that you wrote in Salon, like probably 10 years ago now, yeah, yeah, yeah. about being Latino in American, like ways that people assumed uh, yeah. you were yeah. uh, and wanted you to be. Yeah. And first, maybe you can describe it a little bit because you'll describe it better than I will. It all came about because if I was invited to this um, kind of fancy pants fundraiser for the San Francisco Public Library. It's one of those things where they invite writers to like sit in a fancy dinner with civilians and uh, you're there to chat with them about the importance of books. And I was at a stage of my career where anything that I got invited to, I said yes, because Mm -hmm. I was like so 
everything was so amazing, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, I'm put at this table. I looked at the time like I was like 16 years old, you know, I looked so young. So I think all the, all the people on the, the table are disappointed that they weren't sitting with Tobias Wolf, you know, but they're sitting with me. <laughs> and so this woman sat, sitting next to me and she's like, what, what's your name again? And I was like, oh, Daniel Alarcón. She's like, oh, that, is, that sounds like um, this word in Spanish. What is that? Uh, al, al. No, she's like, is that like Al Qaeda? You know, and I was like, no, no, it's nothing like Al Qaeda. <laughs> yeah, she said it to me, and I was like, I don't know. And then this is the part with, uh, I don't know what what I was thinking. I was just trying to like maybe make it less embarrassing for her because she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, you know, all Spanish words with al are Arabic, you know, because of the 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 Moorish occupation of Spain. You know, I was like, so you're not that far off. And she's like, oh, that is so topical. That's uh, what she said to me. I'm like, huh, great. And she started telling me, uh, she asked, she, 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 you know, this is something that always happens to me or happens, I think, to, to, to Latinos all the time. It's like, you're a Peruvian. And they'll say, oh, my sister's roommate, you know, went to Guatemala. <laughs> and I'm like, so the fuck what? Like, a, <laughs> like look, that's nowhere near Peru. It's like, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that happens that now I just don't even notice it. I'm like, okay, that's terrific. <laughs> Um, and then, um, then she asked me if my parents were illegal and she used both the word illegal and she just, and I was just like, wow, that is something. And I realized that I was, that as I was telling her that they were not illegal or they were not undocumented, that she was just really disappointed, you know, that I was like really letting her down because to her, there was only one type of Latino writer and that's the Latino writer who like has a very uh, set narrative you know which is an important narrative in the united states but it's not mine and it's also like the diversity of of latinos in the united states is is vast you know and not everyone comes you know from from like uh, edward james almost movie and that's an important story to tell no question but it but it would be ridiculous of me to pretend that that was my story yeah it would be false and it would be you know unethical she was gravely disappointed by the fact that i grew up in birmingham alabama uh, by the fact that my parents were physicians, you know, like I went to private schools and it struck me that there's, there's a, there's a demand sometimes on writers like us, like me, that we're not allowed to be creative, that we're just, we're supposed to be anthropologists Yeah, and you're only allowed to tell a certain kind of story and, and you're praised for your authenticity and not for your creativity. You know, like no one talks about how, how authentic white writers are, you know? <laughs> Like, it sounds even funny, you know, like to, to be like, oh, the, the new Saffron 4 novel, it's so authentic. It know? really authentically represents the white experience. Yeah, no, no one ever says that. Yeah. It, and, you know, and, but black writers and Latino writers, you know, Asian American writers, like all ethnic writers get that, have that conversation all the time. And authenticity is one of those words I really dislike. I feel like, in general, hum, the human experience is authentic. You know, it's like people, even when they're being quote unquote fake, they're being authentically fake. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like San Francisco is a simulacrum of some vision that someone had, but it's its fakeness is its, its essence now. You know, and it's it's real. You know, yeah. so it's like, and that you're nodding because you know San Francisco, but uh, but maybe to the listener that just sounds like <laughs> nonsense. But it it gets at something that I've always felt that I like. You know, like people say like, oh, that suburb wherever it's so fake, and it's not fake. You know, we grew up there. And the people who grew up there, like if you grew up there, children growing up there and assuming that it is the world, make it real. Yeah, you know? and it's authentic. Well, actually, I was just talking to John Wallen about this because he just went to Disney World. Yeah. Disney World is like an even more extreme example of a fake place that is also in and of itself like the authentic experience of an American child going to Disney World is... A real thing. A real thing. Yeah. And, it, and it's also like... If human beings didn't like fake things, like we wouldn't have the Taj Mahal, you know, we wouldn't have like all of these things that are just monuments to our imaginations, you know. And but anyway, I wrote that that, that essay sort of grappling with that idea. It's been ten years since you wrote that. Yeah. And in your either your personal experience in your career or more broadly, do you perceive change in like how people approach you or? Mm. Uh, and people and how people approach my fiction, I don't know. I remember asking this sort of jokingly to the fact checker at the New Yorker once, because you know they fact check fiction often. You know? uh, yeah. And I remember jokingly saying like, "Hey, do you fact check George Saunders?" You know, and like dead dead air. You know, 
um, because they were saying, you know, like this hospital is on this street and not the street. And the, the strike you describe in May happened in April. And I was like, I made that strike up, like totally made it up. Um, and I made that, that comment about George Saunders and just no response, <laughs> you know, like didn't think it was very funny. So I don't know. I don't know if it's changed. I, I mean, I, I sort of just keep my head down and work, so I don't really pay much attention to it. And I don't go to those library fundraisers anymore. Yeah. So mostly that's one way li- that's one limiting way my interaction it. with with uh, with library fundraiser types. I mean, I love the libraries. Um, <laughs> has saved me from that. You know what, man? When my first book came out, I got these emails, hilarious emails. Not like one of them, but like five or six of them. They were like Daniel Arcon. I really liked your book. You know, your prose is this, and da 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 da. Could you recommend a nice hotel in Cusco? Not kidding you. I'm not fucking kidding you. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, I was like, man, like a, a a white American writer would never get that email. Like, what am I, a fucking tour guide? And then I would suck it up and I would be like, you know what? Here's a link to some websites some where some tourist information you might be able to find. You know why? Because I do want people to visit Peru. It's like, I don't know why people read my books. And if someone took the time to write me, you know, even if it's like an, a, a question that I might find idiotic or maybe even possibly offensive... You know, it's like they didn't write me to offend me. They just don't have any other context for Peru. And Peru is not in the news every day in the United States. Like there's no reason why someone is an American middle-class person who reads a book is obligated to know everything about the world and certainly not obligated to know everything about Peru. And maybe, you know, it's just a question they, they, they don't know anyone else to ask. They're like, hey, let me ask the Peruvian guy who wrote that story. Maybe they are just, uh, they're emailing like Jonathan Franzen and they're like, I'm going to St. Louis. <laughs> what, where should I stay? What should I see? Is the arch worth seeing? Maybe. No. I would say that's an incredibly generous uh, yeah, response on your part. You have to get Franzen in here and ask him. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Last thing you mentioned at some point in this conversation that you did get to a point where you would get on a plane and go knock on someone's door to see if they would open it. If there was a story there, which I'm left wondering, did they open the door? And was there a story there when you did that? Yeah. Yeah, there was a great story there. Can they you tell me what it was? Yeah, it was the this piece that I wrote called The Contestant that was in California Sunday. Yeah. That I also did as a radio piece for for, uh, for Radio Ambulante. And I've also performed as a live bilingual multimedia So that piece. was that story? I was in Lima and I was embedded at this game show called The Value of the Truth. People are subjected to a lie detector and asked... A bunch of personal questions and the lie detector they have to answer them truthfully if the lie detector says they lied then they lose and they can win money depending on how truthful they are the first contestant on the show the proven version was a young woman named Rutalia Sayas Sanchez a few months after she was on the show I was embedded at the show because I was really interested in the program had become very popular and I was very interested in how it might be used as kind of a, a pop tribunal mm-hmm. you know holding people to account when the system itself doesn't hold people to account because there had been a number of cases where it was sort of like teetering on the edge of having some social value, you know? And I was I wrote the producer of the show, and I was like, hey, can I come watch how you how you make the show? He's like, yeah, sure. It's kind of in Beto Ortiz. And uh, I was at the show when this young woman, Rutalia, went missing. And I was at the show when she her body was found. And essentially, her boyfriend had uh, killed her because of revelations that had been made on the show. Uh, and he felt he was owed part of the prize money and um, she has sort of been dragging her feet and paying him or didn't want to pay him I don't know mm-hmm. and so it was this very high profile TV murder that happened right before my eyes essentially because I was at the show and I was in the room when the family came to ask Beto what should we do and I was in the room when like the sister of this woman was talking you know on Beto's cell phone with the you know one of the, the minister the minister the minister of women's affairs in Peru Beto was making this connection and trying to trying to basically get them on his side so they wouldn't like sue him or in public denounce him or all this business so i saw these incredible scenes but i was also disgusted by you know there's a terrible way in which people who are very poor will never be on tv no one will ever care about you unless something awful happens and, uh, and it's true everywhere, you know, but it was very stark in this case. And I'd never really seen that power dynamic up close where there's this powerful TV, you know, newsman and host, you know, who has the government on speed dial on mm-hmm. his phone, mm-hmm. you know, and these, these other people who have nothing. Six months passed and I'd, I'd been reading a lot up about this sort of like background stuff and, and I'd never had, no one had written a long form piece on it. And so I just went I, I, and I found the house and I went 
I, I, I literally, <laughs> this is great. I tell people this all the time because radio is so easy. I was in a, in a cab with this kid who was sort of my assistant, and I trained him how to use the recorder, like, in the cab on the way. Or day, you know? <laughs> really? Like, that was the only training he got. It was like, just hold the mic here, watch these levels, you know. That was it. And so he recorded while I did the interviews. And I knocked on the door. I just told him who I was and what I wanted to do. The father answered the door. He invited me in. And then he, you know, he introduced me to everybody. I ended up speaking to like 17 different people and putting together like a 45-minute radio documentary and then this piece for California Sunday. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. Thanks so much to Daniel Alarcon for coming on the podcast this week. I'm Evan Ratliff, co-host of the Long Form Podcast, along with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to them. Thanks to our editor, as always, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell. And to our sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, and Home Chef. With Home Chef, you can prepare a restaurant-quality meal at home. They give you all the ingredients in 30 minutes or less. Make it yourself. Go to homechef.com slash longform and check it out. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.